Our second scripture reading comes from Romans chapter 1, verses 16 through 19 and verse 25. And you can find that on page 1112 in your hymn Bible. So if you would follow as we read Romans 1, 16 through 19 and verse 25. Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written. The righteous will live by faith. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people, who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. (coughs) Have you ever been challenged by a concept where you have mauled it over in your mind repeatedly seeking to better understand how it applies to you. I have been challenged with the concept of identifying who or what I am prone to give worship to apart from God and assessing better what is truly in my heart. One thing I am convinced is true, that hardship most clearly reveals what's in one's heart With one's prosperity, what is in your heart is most freely acted upon. The concept of idols is nothing new to God's people. God himself commanded in the first two commandments, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above, or on the earth beneath, or in the waters below. Now, one can define an idol as anything in heaven or earth made and raised to the place of priority that belongs only to God. Martin Luther said, whatever your heart clings to and confides in, that is really your God, your functional Savior. This is something that I've been personally challenged to consider. Interestingly, it has come up with in several studies that I've been involved. What I'm going to share this morning are my thoughts regarding this issue. So if I'm not to make or raise anything to the level of God, are there things currently in my life that I make into functional saviors? What do I tend to cling to and confide in besides God? Stopping to identify all the things that I lean on for security is indeed numerous. A paycheck, medical facilities with the expertise of the staff, uh, retirement plan, a healthy and involved family, and the list can go on and you can think on your own just the number of things that we lean on. I find my natural default is to make these things into saviors and idols. John Calvin, 500 years ago, made this observation about a man's heart when he says, man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. 
Now, at first blush, as Protestants, when we think of idols, we are quick to note that we do not set up statues to bow down to or icons to venerate. So what idols am I prone to set up in my life? Idols are things, created things that I cling to, confide in, trust or depend upon to give my life meaning and significance that are other than God. Idolatry has also been defined as the raising of good things to the level of ultimate things. Scripture declares how man is created to have a relationship with God and created to worship. Paul states in the Romans passage that we read that because of sin, I am prone to exchange the worship of God for the worship of created things. Genesis informs us how we are created in God's image. Our unique creation gives us the ability to be in a relationship with God in a way that nothing else created has. This aspect of our being, nothing else shares. Therefore, we ought never to think that when a loved one dies, that they have become an angel. Angels are not made in God's image, and mankind is raised above the angels. Paul himself says that we will judge angels. For a believing loved one to become an angel would be a demotion. But that's a side thought. With the introduction of sin in our lives, we are each set adrift from God. Sin separates us from him. Being adrift, we naturally move away from him. Yet because of our design to know God, we have a need to worship. Sin has not removed that need from us, but it has redirected our efforts to fulfill its desire by devoting ourselves to things other than God. We, when left to ourselves, are naturally adrift from God, and we are ever moving further away. Though created to worship God, we each have, because of sin, the propensity to not worship God as first and primary. So we substitute created things in the place of the Creator. A statement from Timothy Keller I found helpful when thinking on my idols is this. He says, The true God of your heart is what your thoughts effortlessly go to when there's nothing else demanding your attention. What occupies your mind? I find this a challenging statement. It is vital for believers to take seriously their relationship with God. Though it is true that he is loving and kind, we must not forget that he is also holy and just. He is one who is demanding and jealous of his holiness. Sin is a direct attack against his holiness. Sin, in any of its forms, is my seeking to take his throne. Even the smallest sin is an act of treason against him. Now, as we grow in our faith, we become more aware of our sin and thus more aware of the grace extended to those who believe. The scriptures tell us that no one is righteous, no, not one, and that Jesus came to provide salvation from God's wrath against our sin. Consider how Jesus himself tells us his purpose and how the apostle Paul tells us of God's grace given through Christ. In John 3, Jesus said, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. 
Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Jesus did not come into the world to condemn because everybody in the world is already condemned. Jesus came to save those who believe from their state of condemnation by taking upon himself their condemnation. In Romans 3, Paul says, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to to be received by faith. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. It is Jesus' sacrifice of atonement that pays for the believer's sin. That act reveals God to be both just and the justifier. God's justice against sin is paid for by Christ, and Christ being provided us by God shows he is our justifier. God demands justice and provides it for whoever believes. By Christ's work, the believer's salvation is secure because they are no longer condemned, but justified by God himself. Because of God's grace and mercy through Christ, there is no longer anything within the believer that separates him or her from God. This being done on our behalf does not excuse or give us reason to take God for granted or to treat him as if he doesn't matter. Why then do we still default to idols and drift from him? Sin, not guarded, even for the believer, sets us adrift. What does drift look like for us? From our Old Testament lesson, we will learn some helpful thoughts. Ancient Israel had been witness to much of God's working, his deliverance, his miracles, their incredible preservation. Yet dispersed throughout their history, we notice their propensity to drift from God. The book of Judges is replete with examples of this tendency. Entering into the promised land, the people begin by following the leadership of Joshua and remain faithful to the Lord. But after his death, they begin to disregard God and disobey his word. After some time, oppression would come against them. They would cry out for deliverance, and in God's grace, he would provide a judge who would lead them into and provide this deliverance. For a time, they again would be obedient, but as time went on, they would disregard God, leading to disobedience and oppression, and the cycle would repeat. The consequence of drift is clearly seen. The lessons we learn from ancient Israel are given us to learn from and in wisdom not repeat their errors. Though times, situations, and circumstances have changed, what they faced and decisions they made can serve as great teacher for us to apply to our situation and circumstances. In our Old Testament lesson, we read a portion of Israel's history that recorded a traumatic event in their existence. Let me summarize some of the history leading up to our reading. King Solomon started his reign with wisdom, seeking God and his guidance. Over time, he compromised his faithfulness to God. He allowed false religious practices to be introduced. This began the drift that we are going to consider. A brilliant man, many sought Solomon's counsel 
And though he started in wisdom, fearing the Lord, he drifted from God and ended with mere intelligence. Opposition to his rule and the royal line of David had begun. As you are aware, God had covenanted with David and the royal line of David that through him would come the promised Messiah. During his life, Solomon was successful in putting down opposition against him, but it was not eliminated. When he died, his son Rehoboam became king, and many of the people took this as an opportunity for change. They confronted Rehoboam, seeking relief from the heavy burden his father Solomon had laid on him. When Rehoboam refused to ease their burden, this ignited a civil war, giving impetus to previous opposition leaders. Like our own civil war, the nation split north and south. But unlike our civil war, there was never a resolution to this divide. Ten of the twelve tribes made up the northern nation and retained the name Israel. They were led by one who had opposed Solomon, Jeroboam. The remaining two tribes, primarily Judah, stayed with their king, Rehoboam. This southern nation became known as Judah, after the main tribe that remained with the line of David. This division forever changed the course of Israel's history. As we read, you may have noticed how Jeroboam, in his attempt to keep his position as king, devised a couple of strategies to keep the people from returning to Jeroboam and worship at the temple. From these strategic choices, the northern kingdom never recovered from their drift or faithfulness to God. It is from Jeroboam's decision that we want to learn how to guard against our natural desire to drift from God and replace him with other things. There are three decisions that he made that set Israel adrift and even sped up their departure from faithfulness to God. The first is that he set up alternative gods to worship. We read, after seeking advice, the king made two golden calves. Number two, he set up alternative ways to worship. Jeroboam built shrines on high places and appointed priests of all sorts of people, even though they were not Levites. And number three, he set up alternative places to worship. One he set up in Bethel and the other in Dan. Jeroboam effectively untied Israel's raft from the dock of God's word, setting it free in the current, allowing it to drift on the river of unfaithfulness. Each of these three decisions effectively moved them further and further away from God. How do these three decisions look to us in our culture. Let's consider each of these decisions. He set up alternative gods to worship. Jeroboam set up two false gods, golden calves, to represent the true God. These were representative things raised to a priority belonging only to God. He says, here, Israel, are your gods who brought you up out of Egypt. One's desire and need to worship is by design. We will devote ourselves to something and seek from that something fulfillment, satisfaction, provision, and significance. To set up alternative gods, we do not have to set up idols in the proper sense. We can set up any created thing and give to them the priority belonging to God alone. That which God promises, security, provision, and identity, 
we look for from our created gods. In serving these gods, we find them to be tough taskmasters. They promise fulfillment, but are never delivering. We are ever striving to please them, never knowing when or if we've done enough to gain what we seek. The God of wealth promises to provide and satisfy, yet we're still wanting. When asking the richest man in the world in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, how much money is enough, John D. Rockefeller answered, just a little bit more. We are always trying to do enough, but coming up short and not finding satisfaction. These gods do not provide any forgiveness, grace, or rescue. I found some of my idols veiled behind my use of time. As you look at your use of time, to what do you give a high priority? What do you find yourself devoted to? In what are you investing, hoping to find your significance in adequacy? Is it in time spent with your family? Is it in employment? Is it in gaining possessions or being engaged in more private, secretive activities, in promiscuity or with pornography? These things, along with many others, are all things that we make into alternative gods. A trap these gods produce is that in their service, you never find what you seek. You were designed to worship and have a relationship with God. By giving these gods priority, we find our created gods unsatisfying and unfulfilling. The lesson we learn from setting up alternative gods is that they each propel our drift away from God. Drift from the true God moves you away from your design to be in a relationship with him. Substituting your design for God and applying it to alternative gods will always leave you wanting and unfulfilled. Secondly, he set up alternative ways to worship. An argument among believers deals with Uh, forms of worship style, usually reduced to the description of contemporary or traditional. This is not what I mean when speaking about alternative ways to worship. The alternative ways to worship I'm referring will include active modes of service to our alternative gods, as well as passive, if not active, disregard for the true God. One thing is very true for every one of us, is that we will devote our time and energy to whatever we give priority. We will always find time to do what we want. What does our culture's alternative ways of worship look like? On nearly every Sunday, thousands of people from all walks of life and from all over the country gather united in purpose and interest, excited to be together to sing the praises of their favorite sports team. With their gathering, they are not ashamed to be identified with them. To be present at this gathering, many will endure the uncomforts of weather, be it heat, rain, snow, or wind, and they come gladly prepared to face it. After all, to do so shows their dedication to this, their priority. Others will gather in smaller groups to teach and train their youth. They see priority in the ways of sport. These activities are deemed important in the development of their youth to make them vital. The hope is that the lessons learned will be incorporated into their various life pursuits. 
After all, we want our youth to develop well, and to do so means we must give them aspects that we deem vital and important for their lives. Some might make their alternative place of worship as intimate as their home. They view Sunday as extra time for themselves. At this place of worship, the use of time is more laid back and personal. Worship begins even before one is out of bed. Staying in bed late is a great service to self. After waking, waking, the day is taken slow because it is necessary to relax and to refresh. Whatever is done that day, the priority is placed on oneself and one's desires. Now, I use these examples somewhat tongue-in-cheek, but as believers, these examples cause us to ask ourselves an important question. Where or in what do I place my general priority? Do you find yourself committed to the things of God, practicing the discipline of personally reading his word, growing in your faith, and making decisions based on your trust in him? Or is your involvement with him and participation with his people more reflected in the attitude, if I have time, or if there's nothing else going on? Speaking about this issue with youth, I once made the statement, let's not say God is number one until we first make him equal. What do you mean, they ask? Is it not appropriate for the Christian to say that God is number one, followed by everything else? I challenged a quick assent by saying, we rarely, if ever, make God first over family, job, activities, pleasure, leisure, etc. So if it is true he is not first over these, then neither is he even equal to them. To help illustrate what I was saying, I asked, as you consider your normal way of doing things, which are you more likely to do? Pass on church or a church activity for a leisure activity, sporting event, scout outing, extracurricular school event, or pass on one of these activities for church involvement. Realizing how activities more often come first, they got the point I was making. We are each guilty of doing this. If we're honest, we know God is not number one in our lives, and we have not even made him equal to our other interests. Knowing this helps us identify our idols and our devotion to them. Unwittingly, we as believers, following cultural trends and priorities, often allow drift to creep into our lives. Now, please don't get me wrong. I am not saying that all activities should stop on Sunday. There are jobs and activities that need to continue even on Sunday. For example, we need the police and we need the medical profession. And I'm not proposing that we be Pharisaic in our approach to worship on the Lord's Day. I am, however, suggesting that we be honest with who or what it is that we worship, so to assess only as believers can who it is that we are truly giving ourselves to. Drift from the true God moves you away from your design to be in relationship with him. Substituting alternative ways uh, will always leave you wanting and unsatisfied. These each serve, at best, the temporal and never deal with the eternal. Thirdly, he set up alternative places to worship. When we think of places of worship, 
Jesus himself told the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, he said, Woman, believe me, a time is coming when you will neither worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. By this he was telling her that to know and meet God, one is not bound to a location. God is worshipped in spirit and truth, and believers need to worship him that way. By this statement, Jesus is also not instructing that there ought to be a disregard for the corporate gathering of his people in places designated for public worship. Adding to Israel's idolatry, Jeroboam set up alternative places of worship. To establish a greater acceptance of this drift, he added the excuse of convenience. We read where he instructs his people, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, Israel. One he set up in Bethel and the other in Dan. Of course, Jeroboam had ulterior motive of self-preservation in this statement, but he convinces the people to drift further uh, with the convenience of not having to travel so far. You can follow your gods in a much more convenient way and location. Now, we've already mentioned the rarity of making God truly first in our lives. The commitment to convenience leads us to move the true God out of our focus, adding to our drift from him. With our culture's pursuit of convenience, often the place of focus becomes the self, and it has turned away from God. For those who are not providentially prohibited from joining, how convenient it is to turn on the TV, the computer, the tablet, your phone, to listen to or watch the preacher of your choice while wearing your PJs with a cup of coffee or a bowl of cereal in hand, not having to interact with anyone or be held accountable. We have become very individualistic. Timothy Keller, in speaking about our covenant relationship with God, states, you cannot enter into a covenant relationship with God individualistically. The covenant God made with Abraham is a covenant with God that all believers are a part. And though we believe individually in Christ, we are each made part of his covenant family. When Jesus speaks of his church, he was incorporating an already known Greek concept of assembly. Our word for church comes from the Greek concept of a called assembly. Jesus incorporates this notion and applies it to those that he has called together in covenant relationship with himself to assemble as his called out people. The assembling together as members of a covenant family is vital for real worship. Our worship is not limited only to corporate gathering, but true worship of God involves a regular one day in seven corporate endeavor done with others in covenant relationship with him who gather deliberately in a place designated or associated with him. Gathering in this way makes a statement to the community. It shows a commitment and devotion to the true God against all the other cultural gods. It shows how his people see him as a a priority over all these cultural gods. Just from a practical point of view, what difference does knowing Christ make to those who do not know him if we who believe live as though he makes no difference? If by my knowing him, my priorities are not influenced, 
My activities are not adjusted. My motivations do not take him into consideration where I do not look, think, act, or worship differently than those who do not know him. What difference does knowing Christ make? For me, living like this makes the idols of culture and their places of worship a priority over God. This shows me how I have drifted from the true God. Drift from the true God moves you away from your design to be in relationship with him. Substituting alternative places, neglecting your covenant family, is an indicator that you are drifting in the current idols produce. They will leave you wanting and unsatisfied. If you would read the rest of Israel's history, you will find how their drift influenced the rest of their existence. As a nation, Israel never returned to the worship of the true God. This drift led them to demise and their children in that same direction. We want to be a church of impact and vitality. Are we recognizing our personal propensity to make things idols and devoting ourselves to them? In recognizing these in our lives, are we adjusting the priority we give to them, beginning to paddle back upstream, tightening our tether to the dock of God and his word? To the unbeliever, the church will never be seen as important. If believers live as the unbeliever, the church will never be important. Let's pray.